preliminaries of the integrated science of the absolute. The structural unity of thought. Modern trends in scientific investigation are revealing that certain striking common features are at once characterizing both the microcosmic and macrocosmic worlds. Science is becoming more interested in description than in actual objective facts as unilaterally understood. Concepts thus gain more importance and what is more, the observer and the observed tend to belong together to a common context. Cosmology and psychology thus are approaching each other as it were from opposite poles of the total knowledge situation to which both belong. In such a process of integration of perceptual and conceptual aspects, physics and metaphysics have their equal share of importance on neutral ground. Quantum mechanics relies on the same structure as is found in astronomy. So in astronomy, when you make a picture of the solar system, you put the sun in the middle and then you have all the planets orbiting the sun. sun. When you make an image of the atom, you put the nucleus in the middle and have all the electrons circulating. So structurally, both are the same. Whether you look at it from cosmology or whether you look at it from quantum science, both have the same structure. So quantum mechanics relies on the same structure as is found in astronomy. Mathematics, logic and semantics are also revealing each day new parameters on the structural frontier which tend to conform to each other as between disciplines previously considered to be different or distinct. Many modern books are beginning to stress the common structural aspect that underlies both the subject matter and the object matter of science. In the philosophy of science, we have begun unconsciously a science of philosophy because of the common structural features that underlie both. The logical form was known to Aristotle. Now we speak of logical frames or matrices which are valid and common as even between man and machine. Cybernetics and thermodynamics reveal structural features of a subtle subjective and selective order, all of which are capable of being treated together as constituting one startling development in modern scientific thought. It is now within the reach of thinking man to build a unified science such as this present work is interested in. Electromagnetism replaces and now occupies a central place once occupied by Newtonian mechanics. Qualitative geometry is now replacing the purely quantitative one. Post-Hilbertian notions of the groundwork of both algebra and geometry are revealing new possibilities in which mathematics as an independent science becomes self-sufficient in matters relating to certitudes in both domains. Algebra can support geometry and vice versa. Thus we live at a time when far-reaching possibilities are opening out before us. This in itself is encouraging enough to embolden us in our present undertaking. The common structure to which subjective thinking and objective events can be referred to for normalization and renormalization 
in view of the certitude from both the perceptual and conceptual sides of human understanding is perhaps the one most encouraging sign of our times. Sir Edmund Whittaker says about renormalization, the development of quantum elect electrodynamics has, in fact, shown the necessity for what is called renormalization, which is precisely a recognition of this difference between the observed and the theoretical values of E and M. Although Eddington did not live to see the development of this modern practice of renormalizing E and M, he said that a situation of this kind must arise, and he uttered a warning against expecting too close an agreement between his theoretically calculated values and those obtained by measurement. This makes it possible to have a science of the absolute, which previously we did not have. Laboratory knowledge versus seminary wisdom. Number four. A subtle though tragic element of paradox lurks within the structure of thought. Only a normative study of the absolute can bring this to light. There are two dichotomous aspects, two distinct poles, sometimes called antinomian principles, with a complementarity and ambivalent reciprocity between them. Evident when the total knowledge situation is reduced to its most simple, abstract and general terms, based on both its conceptual elements on one side and its corresponding perceptual image on the other. These two join in the core of human consciousness schematically. It is here that from opposite sides, as it were, of a subtle parameter that algebraic thinking may be said to meet its own dialectical counterpart made up of pure geometrical elements, entities or things. To transcend this tragic element, implying paradox, has been the major task of philosophy and is also the central problem which we have to face here. The polemical battles that have raged between those who stressed concepts at the expense of percepts and others who stressed the opposite have raised and are still raising in our own time clouds of controversy which contribute to fill libraries with more and more verbose books of vain speculation. Even today such rumblings do not tend to abate. There are those like A.J. Iyer in our own times who will too readily take one side and assert that metaphysics is nonsensical and without significance. There is a footnote. Ayer says, and as tautologies and empirical hypotheses form the entire class of significant propositions, we are justified in concluding that all metaphysical assertions are nonsensical. Language, truth and logic. Huma and that humanity can live wholly with the help of empirical knowledge and propositions based on them. These are the empirical positivist and analytical philosophers, variously called functionalists, operationalists or pragmatists. In such a company, we can also include instrumentalists. Even when such instrumentalism implied by them is only logical or mathematical. 
Such philosophers tend to expect the whole truth to emerge to view one day when what are called the laboratory methods of science are more and more scientifically pushed forward. As they understand it, this is to be accomplished by piecemeal and trial and error ways until by a gradual process of annexation of new ground, the unknown is brought within the scope of the known. Then they expect to triumph finally in creating a philosophy which would retain what they would prefer to call its scientific status. Such a dream is like that of a promised land, one which does not seem to recognize the paradox lurking at the core of truth, but rather tends to bypass it by a one-sided approach. When unitively, structurally and schematically examined, such laboratory biased scientists may be seen to be not fundamentally different from their one-sidedness compared to those in a rival camp who belong to a context of the wisdom of the seminary. Between the two rival worlds, there is only an apparent outer contradiction. When the nature of this apparent opposition is more closely examined and intuitively understood, we come to realize the truth common to both. And then the legitimate claims of a possible unified science of the future will come more clearly into view. When Shakespeare said that one may call a rose by any name, yet it will still smell as sweet, he was putting his finger on the very tragic or paradoxical core of the total knowledge situation while trying to overcome the contradiction. Names are nearer to concepts, while smell belongs to the opposite pole of the world of percepts. Both belong to the rose. The promiscuous mixing of these aspects leads to the confusion of tongues known as babelization, of which the natural consequence is a vain and voluminous verbosity often mistaken for good metaphysics. Unilateral approaches, whether to physics or to metaphysics, are both wrong. One necessarily presupposes the other, and to learn how to give to each its due place in speculation is what we call the normative, unified or unitive approach. The a priori approach is anathema to the physicist. Even a phenomenologist of modern times who stem out of Kantian Hegelian idealism have a secret repugnance to anything that savors of the a priori. Husserl writes, I avoid as far as possible the expressions a priori and a posteriori, partly on account of the confusing obscurities and ambiguities which infect their ordinary use but also because of the notorious philosophical theories which, as an evil heritage of the past, are interwoven with them. So this is part of the history of Western thought, that they could not, they became very suspicious of the a priori. There are positivists or empiricists of our own time, like Bertrand Russell, who are becoming more and more conscious of the limitations of empiricism, especially because quantum mechanics has dealt a death blow to their programs. A theory of knowledge accommodating quantum mechanics and electromagnetics with time, space, gravitation and the principle of causality 
in the unified field of nature or in the name of a continuum where space and time enter on equal footing is in the process of being discovered by modern scientific thinkers. When they come nearer to their objective, it could be expected that they will be able to shed their long-standing prejudice against the a priori synthetic approach of philosophers like Kant. By insisting on only the a posteriori, analytic, they will never be expected to resolve the paradox. Only when this happens will it be possible for strict thinkers to have a complete bilaterally understood or reciprocally balanced theory of knowledge serving as a regulative principle for the normal progress of human knowledge. <clears throat> Theologians may be charged with being dogmatic a priorists who are ready to believe anything even though wholly undemonstrable and thus unscientific in the usual sense. Those who belong to the seminary school of thought can have legitimately laid at their door many grave errors of omission or commission. This does not mean either that all truth is to be sought solely from the custodians of the laboratories. There is a large body of general ideas taken for granted by the simplest of human beings just because they happen to be human. The importance of general ideas in any total yet strictly scientific scheme should not be overlooked. When a child of two or three watching an elder playing hide-and-seek with it, a third person observing the features of the child could notice an alternating play of expectation and dismay, hope or despair, suggesting a tendency alternatively to skepticism and a, to a willingness to believe. The child could be seen to be torn between the world of the visibles and the world of general ideas, both of which exist together only in the core of its absolute tabula rasa, as Locke said, constituting its normal consciousness. When the hiding elder is not seen for a minute longer than expected by the child, one could see sadness and disappointment ever growing stronger reflected in its face. When the hiding face reappears, the wonder of it becomes too much to be contained by the little heart of the child. Here in such a situation, the child's spirit swings, as it were, alternatively, between skepticism and belief. If we should substitute philosophers and scientists in the place of the alternative realms of skepticism and belief possible to the child's mind, we should get a picture of the same total scope and alternating movement at the core of the bipolar paradoxical total knowledge situation which we have already tried to explain. We shall not go further into this question, however, because of having gone into such matters more thoroughly in previous studies. Einstein is a good example of how mysticism itself is being included within the scope of science, as the following quotation shows. The most beautiful and most profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists,
manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their most primitive forms, this knowledge, this feeling is at the center of true religiousness. End of quote. If one makes a statement such as, all men are mortal, and one has the alternative of choosing the laboratory or the seminary for verifying the validity of the statement, common sense might tell us that it is not the laboratory one resorts to, but rather the seminary which normally deals with most general ideas such as eternal life, etc. In the laboratory one can at best expect a verification of such a truth by means of experiments with rats or rabbits in which they might die or be killed, not altogether, but on an average duration of expectation of life proper to each species of animal. The proverbial wisdom does not, however, emerge in this manner. Statistical averages referring to the expectation of life have only a theoretical status as unreal as in any metaphysical statement. That statistics tells lies is also a proverbially known joke. If theologians cannot be trusted as the custodians for general ideas because of their past sins, where then have we to look for confirmation and the formation of general ideas so desirable for all correct speculation? General ideas do not have their own valid source, although such a source is at present, at least in the West, for many historical reasons, not fully relied upon or acceptable to the mind of modern man. A priorism and absolutism have thus become notions which are non grata to the scientist. The decisive factor in our choice between seminary wisdom and laboratory knowledge consists in being able to transcend the tragic element of paradox, hiding between the name of a rose and its own perfume referred to already. They belong together to one and the same significant value, reality, truth or fact. In the field of education, the paradox is you cannot make a good man and a good person and a citizen at the same time. So that is the paradox. If you make a citizen, then that person has to belong to a nation. If he belongs to a nation, then he has to think that there are other nations with which he is competing or they are the enemy nation, etc. If you make him a good person, then he is just one human being, yes. doesn't belong to any nation. So in education, one world education, it begins with this story of the own state, the headmaster of a school, uh, British Times. So he had to teach them, love thy neighbor as thyself. And at the same time, he had to sing, he had to ask them to sing, Britannia rules the waves. And he got that conflict was so much for him, he had a heart attack.